Hey, everybody. How's it going? Before we get into the episode, I just wanted to take a second and highlight a few of the things that Kathleen talked about in the back half of this episode. One of the things that she talks about is a concert that her chamber group is going to do in Birmingham, Alabama. It's on Monday, February 24th at 7 p.m., and the Reynolds Kirschbaum Recital Hall in the Alice Stevens Center where the Alabama Symphony plays. But it's not in that main big hall. It's in one of the smaller recital halls next to it. Um, so if you're in the Birmingham area, I know she would love the support and you'll get to hear about the group and who's in it and what they do and why they do it and all that kind of stuff. And you'll even hear what the inspiration for this particular concert is later on in the episode. So if you want to come out and support her, it is free, but there's a suggested donation, but all the donations will go towards the next part I want to talk about, which is a CD project where they're going to record the stuff that's from that concert. And so that's a big project. She talks about it. Um, like I said, in the back half of the episode. So if you go to the concert, again, it's free, but you know, a nice donation would be good to help support that. There are There is one more opportunity to hear them in Cincinnati, Ohio. So if you're listening in Cincinnati, uh, it's at the St. Francis de Sales Church, Saturday, February 22nd at 7 p.m. It is also free with a suggested donation. So enjoy this episode. She's got so much great information about starting, maintaining, really diving in and creating an authentic product and with a uh, chamber music group, which I know a lot of people are interested in doing or are currently doing. And she's been doing it for a long time. They're successful. So it's definitely worth listening to. All right, enough of me. Let's get to the episode. That's not spit, it's condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and on today's episode, we have a Freeway Philharmonic episode that features my wonderful wife, Kathleen Costello. Now, most of you, if you have been following her uh, Instagram feed and her website and stuff, know that she is the principal clarinetist of the Alabama Symphony Orchestra. So you might be thinking, why is she on a freelancing episode? And the reason why is because she also has a chamber music group that she's been doing for over a decade now. And it's successful in the way that it provides a creative outlet and that they've had great audiences, although they haven't had the time necessarily to maybe make it their main thing. And so I thought it would be really great for her to talk about what it's like to balance a chamber group with a full-time playing career and what it was like to start it, how it's been like to continue it, all these kinds of things that are involved because I know that starting a chamber music group is something that a lot of people are interested in doing upon graduating from uh, a university or something like that college situation, I suppose. And so I thought it'd be really great for her to talk about the ins and the outs of a chamber music group, what they do, why they do it, what they believe in, and the um, sort of pitfalls, challenges, and triumphs of all of that. So first of all, Kathleen, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me. We are currently in a room in our house. <laughs> we didn't have to go far for this. So um, why don't we just start with you just giving us sort of the basics. Start with the uh, name of the group, when it started, who's in the group, 
uh, I know that the membership is not the same now as it maybe always has been. So maybe some of the past and current members and sort of the reason why you wanted to get it started. Okay. So our group is called Ion Sound Project. Um, that name took us a very long time to settle on and I could go into that story later if it's pertinent. Um, so right now we are violin, clarinet, cello, and piano. So Laura Machloff is our violinist. She's a wonderful violinist. She's in the Pittsburgh Symphony. Uh, Alisa Kohansky is our cellist. She is principal cellist of the Pittsburgh Ballet and the Wheeling Symphony. And she also plays in the Pittsburgh Opera and she can be found freelancing all over the Northeast, it seems like. And Jack Kurtz is our pianist, wonderful pianist, um, CMU graduate. Um, also, he has many of his own side projects going as well. And myself uh, on clarinet. And recent, until recently, we had a flutist, Peggy Yu, wonderful flutist um, who's left the group for personal and family reasons. But uh, she was a huge contributor and one of the founding members of the group and uh, pianist and vocalist Rob Frankenberry as well. Um, in the past, we've been what is known as the Perot plus percussion uh, formation, which is flute, clarinet, violin, cello, piano, percussion. And that works quite well because I would say within the last, you know, 40-ish years, there's been quite a bit of repertoire written for that particular ensemble. Groups like Eighth Blackbird have really paved the way to um, many, many new works. And for composers, it's often appealing because um, their compositions might get played by other groups of the same formation. And if you think about it, it's kind of a beautiful combination because it's two wind instruments, two string instruments, and two percussion instruments. So um, especially if players can play auxiliary instruments or the violinist is also a violist, that opens up so many repertoire options. And um, a lot of these types of groups will often only play repertoire for that instrumentation. But over the years, we've always done smaller groups within that uh, grouping. We've sometimes expanded and um, the name of the group not including or implying instrumentation was also very handy because we felt like we have been able to reinvent ourselves over the years without any pressure to change the name um, or the concept, which is really based initially was um, based around the idea that we would commission new pieces of music, which we've commissioned over 80 new works over the years, but also commission other um, artists of other disciplines to collaborate with us. So the idea would be we would cross audiences with those groups, that we'd create unique pieces of art that would be dependent upon either the visual arts or dance or theater or storytelling. Um, we've, we've done an incredible array of collaborations with many different artists over the years. So the eye on sound was originally I, meaning see through your eyes on sound is sort of the play on words. It's spelled I-O-N-S-O-U-N-D, but that was the, the kind of play on words was sort of to um, cleverly include this idea of artistic collaborations along with the music. Yeah. Let's take the, the paintings that are out in our our stairwell over there. Um, this is a project that you did, I believe, for the quartet for the end of time in conjunction with that. And then you had the same, why don't, why don't you talk about it, but I think it was the same uh, artist paint 
pictures or paintings, I guess you would say, mm -hmm. for each of the movements to represent it. And then you had them displayed, I believe, while you performed the quartet for the end of time. That's and, right. Yeah, yeah, I would love for you to just talk. This would be one example of the projects that you would do. And if you just kind of want to walk us through sure. start to finish, why that was important for you to do, um, sort of how it was received, kind of the, the whole long and short of it. Yeah, absolutely. I could probably do a whole episode on this one project. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I try and I'll try not to get too far into the weeds on this one. But, as far as you want. Okay. This is this was one of my favorite projects that we did, partly because I have a passionate attachment to the Quartet for the End of Time, which is by Olivier Messian. And um, the backstory for anybody who knows it is quite compelling, um, with or without any added anything. Um, but Messian had a condition called synesthesia, which um, he took seriously, I guess. Um, it's not like a disease or anything like that, but basically he felt like he could um, hear colors. So he had these sort of <laughs> elaborate descriptions of what, you know, chords would, would look like. So I, I don't think I could remember any of them exactly. It was far more poetic than I would come up with myself, but um this was this is in the research it's it's well documented that he had these um visions with that went with the the type of composition and writing that he was doing so i personally did a lot of research to um document what sort of colors or combinations of colors or um abstract visualizations he had for each movement and i collected that and I had met this um, African artist, Tabala Mwalua was his name. I hope I said that correctly. It's difficult, I think, for us Americans yeah, to yeah, say it properly. I would but not be able to do it. This young, incredibly talented artist um, that I met at a festival and I loved his work and I thought it would be perfect for, or the way that he painted would be perfect for this project. So I talked to him about it. He was interested. He was young. So he was affordable for us, which was wonderful. Mm -hmm, yeah. So we commissioned him to do eight paintings because there are eight movements to this piece. And uh, so he took that research and then he applied his own imagination and artistic talents to the project and came up with his, you know, his part of the vision for that project. And then as we performed it, we had somebody change the painting for, for each movement so that there was that visual representation. But that was definitely one of my favorite projects that we came up with. And again, it was a great example of how how that collaboration can work because it was my idea to, to do that. But then to partner with this talented artist, you know, he really put absolutely put his own stamp and spin on that um, particular project. Quartet for the end of time, for me, is very hard to digest, mm -hmm. especially upon a first listen, right? Knowing the story certainly helps, but just, you know, there's three instruments and it's... Four. Four instruments? Mm -hmm. Oh, right. Quartet. Uh, right. <laughs> Quartet. That would be four. <laughs> Showing my ignorance here, but that's all right. I don't really care. Um, yeah, so there's four instruments and it's... So it's obviously kind of thinly orchestrated and bare at times and... I would imagine then adding this level of visual art to the equation. Do you feel that it made it more complicated or more to hold on to for an audience member or for yourself or something? Does that make sense what I'm asking? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Personally, I think it, it gives them more to hang on to, partly because it gives some real insight into this composer's mind and the way that he thought. He had a few other things that I think are really interesting. He was he loved bird song and those 
those sounds from nature. He was a devout Catholic, so there's a spirituality to his writing that's very important, almost like a mysticism. And I think if you you know about him seeing these colors too, it sort of, it just gives you this much more complete picture of who he was as a person and him as an artist. And to me personally, that always helps me understand art better if I know more about the artist and what they were thinking about or what they cared about. Yeah. And if I care about those things too, then I can convey relate that, yeah. to that artist more. And then ultimately convey that whatever that emotion may be mm -hmm. to the audience in a hopefully a more impactful way. You've performed this piece without art and with art. Mm -hmm. What are the were there differences in the audience's reaction between the two? Was it the, was there a, a difference in how they enjoyed it or didn't enjoy it when the art was there versus not? Does that make sense that I'm It does. I think that's a difficult comparison I mean, just because every audiences, audience is right, different. Right. But uh, we did get a very positive reception to to the artwork. People found it very interesting. Yeah. And I, I would imagine, I would imagine, which is this might be a victory, that it would help it would help pick, stick in people's memories better. Like sure. if they someone else brought up that piece, they might think, oh, I heard that performed once and there were some paintings that along went along with it, you know, that it might help them remember kind of this crucial, important aspect of who this composer was and what inspired him to write the way that he did. So just continuing down this line of this particular project, this is a one and done thing, right? You do it, you perform it. And then now we have like <laughs> three of the paintings, I think four of the paintings at our house. I assume the other members, it was split mm -hmm. among you. Um, how do I ask this question? If it was something that was one and done, what's the value beyond the initial thing? What, what, what do you feel like the value is beyond the initial performance? Like, do you feel like it was worth it just in that moment? Do you feel like it inspired more ideas? Do you feel like it inspired others? Like, cause in, for me, if I was doing a chamber music group, to put in the amount of effort you'd have to put into to have this, something like this really be pulled off, not just like we're going to have a person paint some stuff and see, but to really do all the research, to find everything out, to give everything you have to it, to be able to present a product that's going to move somebody. That takes a lot of effort, right? A lot of sort of digging in and doing it and... Uh, for it to be done one time mm -hmm. feels like that might be the juice isn't worth the squeeze, so to speak. So if we were saying the performance was well-received, what other value do you feel like you have experienced yourself or that you've noticed that made it even sort of the cherry on the top, so, so to speak? Yeah, I think maybe we should back up with a little more background information here. Um, but the short answer to that question would be for me that it's really a labor of love, I would say. And that's not to say that Forming a chamber group can't be lucrative or it can't even be your full-time career. As a musician, it can be. Obviously, we know that there are groups out there that make a living playing chamber music, which is probably amazing. Um, but I think there are many forms and reasons to form a chamber group. Um, we got together initially. Uh, we were a group of freelancers in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania um, in our 20s at the time. And we had sort of a, a mutual feeling that uh, there wasn't enough of the work just being given to us that we really cared about. We were getting, you know, decent freelancing work. We all had a different kind of story at that point. But we all wanted 
something more. Uh, so there were lots of brainstorming sessions about what this group would look like. You know, is the instrumentation that we're looking at right now, does that make sense? What kind of music can we play? And settling on focusing on mostly contemporary music, commissions, new music uh, made sense. It felt a bit more of a, I don't want to say a hole in what was being offered, but we saw that we could bring something fresh and different, especially with this idea that we had for these artistic collaborations. So it was kind of an ambitious vision, which is like, that's pretty classic for being in your twenties when you have no idea (laughs) what's possible, what's not possible. How much work is this going to (laughs) take? Is it going to be worth it in the end? But those are all I mean, it's kind of a beautiful thing too, that we were all willing to explore that and just dive into it for for what it was worth and sort of figure it out, which is exactly kind of how everything happened was just us trying to figure it out as we went essentially. Yeah, yeah. But um, I I would say it wasn't about the money for any of us. And so once, once you take the money aspect out of it, then I think that what you were just talking about, whether one project is worth the effort or not, it's not as it's not as relevant because you're not thinking about it like, well, how much mileage can I get out of this project? You're thinking, is this a worthwhile project to do? Will it matter to mainly to us? Will it matter to audiences? Is it worth doing? One kind of the direction you answered this, but to sort of put a cap on it for me, you answer this in such a way that it basically says that rarely ever, is money the reason something is going to be worthwhile, right? Like you could do something that is worthwhile and it maybe makes some money, but if money is the reason why you're thinking, oh, I'll do this and it'll make a lot of, it'll make a lot of money or whatever. Bobby Horton talked about this on his Mm -hmm. episode that whenever Mm -hmm. he chased the money, it rarely ever panned out to be that way. But he said, if you do something worthy, the money often follows. Mm -hmm. And again, money is not even the big reason why some of those projects should exist, but you're just free to think of what matters at that point. What would what would be meaningful to to collaborate? Who would be meaningful to collaborate? What kinds of collaborations would be meaningful to right. do? And in what sort of medium? And I think your creativity can be off the charts at that point when you stop thinking about Absolutely. money. And then sometimes that creativity is what then sparks interest, I think, in the long term that you did some crazy project that people really liked. Yeah. And I can't really, now that I'm thinking about it, I can't really imagine anybody hiring me to do any of these projects we came up with. You know, it's just, it's not something that someone, I mean, we we thought of them because as a group, we were like, oh, this is, this is a great idea. We should do this. How are we going to do this? Do we need grant money? Do we, you know, how much, how much money do we have to pay this person? Can we split the door? You know, we were constantly kind of measuring the the idea of the project with the feasibility of the project. But I mean, I think as many passion projects are that, that was the question. It was never like, how much money can we make off this, off this project? And I mean, here's the, here's the downside to that because we never relied on ion sound project to make us money. We all make our money some other way. So for all of us, I mean, we're extremely busy and that can vary at different times in people's lives. You know, they, they're, they're busy and then they have kids and then they're like really busy. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> or you're freelancing and sometimes freelancing is busier than a full-time job. Sometimes a full-time job, especially if you're a principal player somewhere, can be an excessive amount of preparation and focus on that, that one job. So you're constantly, you know, dealing with those factors, trying to balance everybody's schedule and honoring the fact that they need to make their money or the people in the group need to make their money 
doing something else because they're not making it from my own sound, that commitment becomes a bit limited because we all have to eat. Yeah, you can't you can't dive in and do what's necessary to make the group, you know, function full time, obviously, which then, like you said, limits, especially in terms of time. Right. Because you got to be doing the thing that you got to be doing to make to, to pay the bills, so to speak. But it's just interesting to me to take on such projects, such big projects like these and, and to, to really push the creative bounds of what we know and what we accept and all that kind of stuff and to have it be this side passion project. And we've we, we talked about this off off microphone, I guess it would be called, but why is that so important to have for you specifically or maybe just in general, why is it so important to have some sort of outlet like mm-hmm. that for you? I know you said that's part of the reason you started it early. You just mentioned that. But as you progressed in your career and you got a full-time job and now you have a different musical outlet, why was it important to keep going with Ion Sound, to keep coming up with new projects? Just what's the importance of that for your, for you in particular and maybe for the group and like maybe what you think globally it can do for people to have some sort of creative outlet like that? Yeah, it's a very important question. Uh, so like I said in the beginning, it was sort of born out of, I guess in some ways, a lack of, a lack of opportunity, a lack of work that we really cared about, I guess, in, individually, you know, or maybe you get one or two gigs per year that really excite you, um, or maybe it's more than that. I don't know, but it, it's it was born out of let's create something, let's create the thing that we don't have right in our lives. Um, and then, you know, we've talked about this many times, but I think we're often trained through our, you know, if we have a music performance major as orchestral instrumentalists we, to a certain extent, get the message that there's really like one main path for us to go and that is to get an orchestra job. So when I got my full-time orchestra job here in Alabama, there was, there were many people who just assumed I would drop Ion Sound because while I had gotten the full-time orchestra gig, why would I go back to Pittsburgh and continue to do this chamber group that's not making any money really? (laughs) It's just kind of, you know, is what it is. It's, you know, we haven't, we didn't grow all that much over the years because again, our schedules were so busy that there wasn't room for growth in terms of creating a longer season or doing a lot of tours or something like that. Um, But what I found when I got this job and I play principal, so, you know, I do have solos and that gives you a little bit of creative license on stage. I guess it depends on who the conductor is. Some conductors give you very little creative license. Um, But I discovered that that lack, that overall lack of creative control or feeling like it was just in very small moments that I would get to exercise my own sort of, I guess, stamp on the the music or the phrasing. Or I guess that's, this is all a, a bigger discussion than we can get into now, but that drove me to desire to keep this chamber group side project going for me because that met so many of these um, creative needs that I felt um, it's just difficult for an orchestra job to meet that 100%. I don't, I don't think our expectations should be that it that it will do that. I think that will set you up for disappointment. Um, and it doesn't have to be a chamber group. It can be any number of things. But that, you know, I had poured so much energy and love and passion into that project already. And um, we'll, we'll talk about this more. But, you know, these were also like good friends of mine. Um, in this group. So it provided a way for me to continue to go see them and spend time with them and get to make music with people that 
I liked being around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. is a big deal. And yeah. we should talk about that at some point because um, in some ways, I think that's the most important factor actually is how is how you get along with the people that you're trying to do this project with. It's fundamentally important to How do you survival. choose that? How do you choose the people? I mean, I assume you guys were friends when you started. You knew each other. You thought, oh, I like playing with that person. I like playing with that person. But I think it's probably not uncommon that this scenario pops up. People start working together and then mm -hmm. personalities start to clash. There's two dominant leaders in the group and nobody will give or and you didn't know that about that person until mm -hmm. you got into mm -hmm. that situation with them. So I'm I'm just curious. I mean, in a sense, do you feel like you got lucky? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And and that you've just worked so well together for so long. And then the other question would be as a follow up, because you already answered that one so quickly. Mm -hmm. Um what kind of give and take do you notice? Do you notice yourself having to, like, is it a situation where you all just get to fully be yourselves? Or do you find yourself giving here and other people are giving there? And does that make sense? It like, does. is it's it a great we, all, question. we all just happen to work together? Or is it like there's compromise going on? And maybe it's even unspoken compromise because we just know that that's what it takes for it to work. So, yes, first of all. <laughs> um, yeah, that's very, a very perceptive question. I would say the two words that come to mind are honesty and humility. I think those two qualities are probably the most important to success in that capacity. I think you have to have humility so that if someone says to you, I just I think you're rushing here, you know, yeah. or you're sharper than I am. Can we meet in the middle that somebody else can be honest with you and that you're not going to flip out? basically. Um, but that you can also feel like you can be honest with the other people as well. That's how you grow. And you don't have a music director. I mean, I guess some chamber ensembles do, but we were never structured that way where we had like one person who was really running the show. Um, we have different roles and have provided different roles from an administrative point of view, which I can get into later if, it, if we get to that. But um, in terms of the actual music making and decision-making process. It was very collaborative. And that doesn't mean you never get into, you know, arguments or, you know, you don't have, I mean, you're going to have awkward moments. You're going to have people being mad at other people. But, you know, if it's a healthy group, you talk about it and you get over it and you move past it. So I would imagine being able to speak openly and honest sort of truth with grace with each other uh, be pretty paramount because there's not a music director to have the final word in that in that scenario. You know what I mean? You, somebody will have to give at some point. And I, I would imagine myself, I have very strong opinions about these, about certain musical phrases and things like that. So um, I, I don't know if I'm just finishing your thought or if you have more to say about it, but it seems to me that this would be very, very important when deciding to start a chamber group, not necessarily in the middle of it, although it's important there, but everybody understanding, like laying those rules out at the beginning. Right. And I think, I mean, to me, ideally also people performing with people in this capacity, like they should have some flexibility as well in every sense of that word. But everything you just described, honestly, they're, those are just incredibly important life skills. And I agree. I don't, I don't think that we're necessarily trained. I mean, there's certain schools or conservatories that are a little heavier on the, you know, chamber group 
training or coaching and if you've got a good coach, ideally they help you talk through some of these issues so that you know, you're not just relying on a coach to tell you what to do or how to play something, but they're teaching you to teach yourselves essentially and how to resolve conflict, how to, yeah, how to, how to talk about a phrasing situation if two people disagree and how to come to a solution. Uh, so those are all, those are all challenges. I mean, what we do is subjective. It's also incredibly personal. So it's easy to take things personally Uh, But at the end of the day, I think one of the greatest gifts of this field and profession is getting to perform with other people. I would much rather play with other people than stand up on a stage and play by myself. And I don't think that's just because the clarinet alone is not nearly as interesting as clarinet plus any number of other instruments. But because there's a there's a beauty in that there's a, a beauty of communication and sharing in something connection that that is just one of the best parts of what we do. Kathleen and I have talked about this during the time I was reading this book called The Second Mountain by David Brooks. He lays out a number of levels of joy. And the first level of joy is this sort of personal joy, sort of taking joy in doing a thing you enjoy doing. So if you're someone who enjoys playing basketball, going out and shooting hoops by yourself would bring you joy. For me, practicing the trumpet brings an amount of joy. It's not always fun, right? But I enjoy the challenge of trying to learn and get better. And then the second level of joy he describes is doing that thing that you enjoy doing, but with a community of other people and how much better it is to get to share that with other people rather than just sitting in your room by yourself and I think it's very weird. Music music is a very weird field in that way where we spend all of our time locked in a room getting better and then we go and we play in an ensemble and then we have somebody telling us how we should or shouldn't do it. And uh, I would say the vast majority of our space is alone though, right? When we're trying to get better. And I mean, it is what it is, but I think just being aware that there are these challenges that if you're aware of them when you start a group and you can talk about them, It's just so much easier to get started and people know, oh, he's just, you know, A, he's telling me how he feels, like he thinks I'm rushing, but B, I don't have to take it personally because we address this. And C, if he was kind of curt with me, I should be able to say, hey, that's very valid, but here's how I would appreciate, you know, like being able to speak to each other Mm -hmm. about how you would like to be talked to Mm -hmm. helps you develop a level of respect for each other as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where like the honesty. I guess you said something truth with grace. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a beautiful way of, of saying that. Um, always maintaining respect for other people and not putting yourself ahead of other people. Certainly not putting yourselves ahead of the music or ahead of the project. Those are all difficult things to do. We all have egos, so it's not easy, but I do think it's important. So we've talked about some of the macro parts of a chamber music group. I think it would be awesome to dive into some of the micro parts. And the place we should start, I think, is this idea that you do the administrative roles of marketing and setting up the hall and the production and obviously the commissioning and like literally everything that happens is on your guys' shoulders. And that's another part I think people should know what that's like, what to expect maybe some tips on how to do it efficiently from someone who's been doing it for a while, that kind of idea, because it's um, not something we're trained for either. We are trained to play our instruments. And unless you have some sort of business 
side thing in college, you're not really going to know what that's like, and you're just going to have to do trial by fire. And so if there's any advice, ideas, things like that, I think we should talk about that. Yes. Um, and I would say absolutely trial by fire is kind of how we learned most of what we learned. We did go to other people for advice, but we just didn't know what we were doing at all in the beginning. Um, so yes, when you start a chamber group, you are in charge of everything. So really what I'd like to say first is it gives me a huge amount of respect and appreciation for what goes into, for example, running an orchestra, you know, like you start to understand a little bit of what the stagehands have to deal with, a little bit of what your marketing people have to deal with, a little bit of what your personnel manager has to deal with, um, artistic planning, you get a taste of all of those things, which is, again, you have some of that creative control and that's exciting. And for us, that was worth it to do, you know, this other work that was worth it. Now, ideally, you find people to play with that you love playing with, that you get along with, that you can meet them eye to eye in these important, um, in this important manner of how you interact with each other. And then also, ideally, your other gifts and skills will line up with um, what needs to be done. So, which of course is a tall order to then be able to split those roles evenly. So I, I think often what happens is it, it often doesn't get split evenly. Um, some people with any kind of group of multiple people, some people will end up doing more work than others, especially of that outside work. And um, hopefully that's okay with the people involved. And um, so we, okay, backing up, there, there are different ways to do this. You can essentially be a for-profit group. You can be a non-profit group. Um, if you want to apply for grants or if you want to ask for donations and have people be able to write those do donations off on their tax returns, then you have to be a nonprofit or you have to find what's called an umbrella organization and um, sort of work with them uh, for your project. So we looked into all these things early on. We got some advice, which now in retrospect, I think is good advice that we should wait to file for a nonprofit status. It's a huge undertaking it's a it's a big process. It takes some funds and um, you need a board when you finish that process. So for years, we we just kind of cobbled together our own money, either from door sales or there were a couple organizations in the city that would give grants to groups that didn't have the the nonprofit status. So we took advantage of a couple of those. And when we sort of, that ran dry, that's when we really took up the idea of, are we going to apply for this status or not? Uh, which we eventually did. Um, before that, I ended up being able to secure a resin residency for us at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, they didn't have a group like us uh, in residency or anything like that in their history. And they agreed that this would be a great way for them. They have a good, um, a very well-respected composition program there. They don't have a terribly active performance or education program, but their music history program and their composition program is strong. They have some wonderful um, composition faculty members there as well. So we had that support from the university and that was huge for us because we could use the space they helped advertise for us. They printed our programs. They recorded our concerts. We, in turn, advertised their concerts and our programs. And we performed a concert every year of um, 
pieces written by the students, the composition students, graduate students at the university. So that was sort of the balance of our relationship. And that worked quite well for about a, a decade, actually. Um, so that was a very, it was a big point for us. And then in 2012, we did decide to incorporate um, with the nonprofit status. And I personally did a lot of that work myself. One of the other members helped with that a great deal. And we got a little bit of outside help um, with some of the final details, but it is it is a big undertaking. It's at least a thousand dollars, so um, that's just something to know up front. That I've known other people who've done that right off the bat. They've said, you know, I'm going to start a group, going to apply for the status, and just have it. So there are a lot of advantages that come with that, um, but it's it's and it's certainly a stamp of commitment. You know, if, sure, you, do, yeah, if you decide right. that you're going to do that, you, you don't then just you know break up and quit the next year or if you do <laughs> certainly feels it's like, like a bit of a marriage maybe yeah, yeah. a lot of work for you know um y- you want to know that it's something that you're you're pretty committed to i would say so there's the commissioning or performing there's the administrative roles there's the ec- extra stuff like nonprofit status there's the securing of a hall. There's mm-hmm. the printing of the programs. Uh, if you have somebody to help you out or an institution to help you out, that's awesome. But if you don't, that's on you. What kind of person do you think would thrive in this <laughs> environment? And what kind of person do you think would not thrive, if that makes sense? Like if there's characteristics, because yeah. to, to further my question, just to give a bit of an example, uh, I'm somebody who has learned that I like to have an amount of control on the process mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. I'm, I have kind of boundless energy and I can work really hard and I'm happy to work hard, especially if it's a labor of love, something I really believe in. So for me, I feel like my personality could possibly thrive in a scenario mm-hmm. like this, even more so seeing a challenge and saying, I'm going to tackle this, you know, instead of saying, this is just hard. Like, I don't know if it's worth it for me. It's like, this is hard. Let's dig down deep, be creative and figure it out. So I could see that I would thrive in a scenario like that. Are there any other characteristics you feel like it takes to thrive? Are there any people out there that you feel like maybe they think, oh, a chamber music group would be for me, but maybe it's not going to be yeah. you know, that kind of thing? I mean, I do. I think, and this is not a slam on people who might feel this way, but I think someone who feels... Like, you know, I love to practice my instrument. I love preparing it. I do care about my artistic ideas, but I really believe that somebody else should take care of all the other stuff. I really just want to show up and play. But that's not, this is not a great, great choice for that type of person. I think you have to be willing to say, you know, if chairs need to be moved around, I need to get up and help move the chairs. You know, if if somebody's got to pick up some food for the reception and everybody else is, you know, their plate is full, well, then you need to volunteer to go to the store and pick up the food for the reception, you know, fill in the blank. It's, you know, it has to be a team effort. And even when it's a team effort, I think, you know, resentment, it's easy for resentment to crop up if someone feels like, you know, I did like, you know, 60% of the work and everybody else did 40 combined, you know, that's not a great dynamic to have going on. And one of the I imagine sometimes that happens. And then being able to just say, you know what, that's my that was my role this time. Yeah. Coming back to the honesty, like hopefully that person can say, hey, look, you know, I feel like I'm being a bit stretched here. What can somebody else do to make things a little bit better for me? Yeah. That would be an ideal response. 
Um, but I'll say personally, one of the things that I still struggle with to this day with this group, I think partly because I have an orchestra job. So when I go to that job, I, I know what time I have to leave my house. I know how much time I want to make sure my reads work. I know how much time I want to run through X number of difficult licks in this program. I know that I can get out, leave the stage, go to the bathroom, get back by, you know, 10 till, feel ready. And um, with a chamber group, especially a group like Ion Sound, that was just many moving pieces. Every concert, it's, you know, and oftentimes that music is far more difficult technically, or you're more exposed than you are on an orchestra stage. You know, you might not get to warm up very much beforehand because something might go wrong. And guess what? You're the person who has to take care of it or one of you has to take care of it. Um, so you have to be a little bit ready for that possibility that, you know, you might be going out feeling a little bit cold and that's a scary place yeah. to be. And it's more vulnerable. Um, it's, it's, it's a different, it's a different experience. Yeah. Um, I, I, I kind of just have this overarching big brain question okay. to end this with. And it's going to be a bit of a crude way to say it, but I think you'll know what I'm asking. Do you think the world needs more ion sounds or do they have enough? <laughs> hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the world could always use more innovative, creative, artistic projects. You know, I mean, I guess on one hand, like all performing groups are, I don't want to use the word struggling, but we're all competing for attention right now. We live in an era where, you know, we've got Netflix, we've got easy entertainment around us, you know, all the time. So this a bit goes back to the question of like, why live music? You know, why is it, why is it important for a member of our culture, of our society to make that financial time? Time's probably even bigger than financial at this point, right? People are exhausted. Like, well, what are you going to do on your Friday night or your Saturday night or your Sunday afternoon? Why pick live music? And I just, I just still hold to the fact that, you know, there's, there's nothing like that, you know, and you and I, we've talked about this many times, but we've had like basically life-changing experiences through being present for a live performance. Not many, but it's happened for both of us. So um, my biggest point is that you don't know when that's going to happen for you as an audience member. And if you don't show up, you're not going to experience it. So that openness to to being there to and, and for hearing something outside of your comfort zone, seeing something outside of your comfort zone, you're not going to know if you like, you know, the music of, you know, blank living composer if you don't go and check it out and and hear it firsthand. I'd imagine it's even more difficult for you to say, come hear us because you're not leaning on the Beethovens and the Mahlers. I mean, I'm sure you play some mm -hmm. of that repertoire, but you're not selling yourself on this is Beethoven, this is Mozart, this is something you're comfortable with. We're saying by coming to see us, you will be stretching yourself mm -hmm. and it's new and it's innovative. So there's really nothing you can compare it to, which is awesome, but I imagine a bit of a harder sell for some people. It can be. Uh, there's some. There's a, there's a small... And again, it, it a little bit depends on the community that you live in. I think there are com communities in certain cities where people are seeking out, you know, a more 
contemporary experience or a more adventurous experience. Um, and again, part of our goal with Ion Sound, at least in the early years, was to sort of get some cross audiences. So maybe this small dance troupe had an audience and we have an audience. If we put it together, maybe we'll combine those audiences and get our our product, you know, our knowledge of our product in the minds of more people by com- combining these these communities and also creating something unique. You know, and like you said, each one of these projects was never fully recreated in the same way again. So, you know, you go to an Ion Sound concert with this idea that it's going to be, you know, uh, a one-time show kind of idea. And we've definitely repeated repertoire, but in terms of the way that that repertoire is conceived yeah, or right. presented, each concert's unique. Now, that being said, we are currently in the middle of like what I would call our first ever like mini tour. <laughs> Touring has been almost impossible for us, especially when we were a larger group because of our schedules and we just couldn't, we couldn't figure out how to commit as a group to that kind of time to do a tour. So this year, um, we've taken three of us. So Elisa Kohansky, our cellist, Jack Kuritz is our pianist and myself. We performed um, a program in Pittsburgh in October and we are performing again in Cincinnati in February and then in Birmingham in February as well. And that program, we took the two major pieces for that instrumentation. So um, clarinet, cello, and piano. There's a uh, trio by Brahms and a trio by Beethoven, which are, I would say, the most famous pieces we have. And we commissioned a new piece um, inspired by each one of those. So one of those dates back to 2011 um, by a friend of ours, Jonathan Colm, wonderful young composer. And that piece was very successful. It really suited us well. Audiences really responded to it. So we are, that's, that's one pairing. So that goes with the Brahms. And then we um, were able to commission this really inspiring um, uh, Spanish-American composer, Elisenda Fabregas is her name. She agreed to write a piece for us uh, inspired by the Beethoven. So now we have that work as well. So this is the, the program that we are touring effectively. And yeah, we've got cool. two programs left to go. So this has been really fun because we actually are going to get to play these pieces again within the same year. So it's um, it's exciting for us. Yeah, that's awesome. I would like to cover one last, I believe, important topic mm-hmm. because you guys, I imagine, have experienced this. Oftentimes when you create something new and it's very meaningful to you, when you do something like what you're doing, you're narrowing your audience by a lot, right? Because you just recognize you're not cre- you're not creating something that's popular music or mm-hmm. whatever. So you're narrowing the audience. And so the idea of understanding that instead of having the biggest audience ever, it would be more awesome to have a smaller audience of very devoted people who are really interested and love what you do. And I'm kind of curious to sort of finish this interview out. What your take is on having developed and cultivated maybe a small but very loyal audience and I don't know how to ask this question in any other way, but I mean, would we rather, would you rather have, I don't know how to ask this question in a good way, because I think it's very easy to wish that you had more. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it's very easy to wish that you were more famous or that more people were coming to your concerts or that you made more money. But when you're serving people who are really invested in what you're doing, it, I think, is more rewarding, although on the surface level, it doesn't seem so. And I would imagine you guys are right in that pocket of you haven't had the ability to dive in and really do what it takes to promote and and, and tour around and spread the word in the way that maybe you could have if that was your main thing. Right, yeah. But mm-hmm. still getting together and promoting it and doing everything you can so you can serve the people that are interested in doing it, uh, I would imagine is a very rewarding part of the thing. It is. And I, 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 I get what you're driving at. I think... I think I look at it a little more like playing for the audience in front of you and consistently over the years, you know, whatever the size of the audience is in front of us, we've gotten really great feedback and people who seem to authentically, genuinely enjoy uh, what we're, what we're putting out there. And also because we've done these projects that have ranged, have had just this huge range of, I haven't even, I mean, I told you about one project, but we did a, a concert with um, two roboticists in Pittsburgh because Pittsburgh, you know, has Carnegie Mellon. So there's this huge, you know, robotics community. And so there's some, you know, really excellent artists that basically worked in that format. So we essentially commissioned a piece and this amazing artist, Garth Zeglin, he created this robot that, you know, basically did this sort of like robotic dance along with this piece. So it was called Android Ballet was the name of that one. But these projects were, I mean, that was an amazing one. We did one um, with, we've done them with storytellers. We did one a couple years ago, which is really memorable, where we worked with this social practice artist where we essentially, (coughs) excuse me, we did these pop-ups in any number of unexpected places. So you know, the Home Depot, Goodyear Tire, uh, on the street. I don't know, you name it. We we popped up in all kinds of different places and played a huge range of music just to sort of see how that changed people's working experience or how their shopping experience. And the reaction was also very interesting from the employees and places we got kicked out of. And um, so yeah, we've just done this incredible range and the things that's taught us as, as, as humans or people or like the way that we've connected with, um, different artists throughout that as well has been incredibly rewarding, but, but I guess that I got off track there, but I would still say, I just, I personally just really believe I'm just giving what you have on that day to the audience that's in front of you. Yeah. I think it's a, a very present minded thing. I think as performers, the more we can embrace that mindset in general, we're better off. We aren't worried about, oh, I wish there were more people here or, uh, you know, are there going to be people next week? We're not living in this sort of space of what if something was different. We're just saying these people here right now are here and I got to do everything I can. Yes. And this also taught me to not like also that I can't care in the moment about what they're they're going to think about it. You know, Cause sometimes we did play really out there stuff that maybe, you know, your grandmother wouldn't like. And then, you know, we collaborated with like some like a folk singer or a pop singer and then maybe some more quote serious composer that followed you for something else might think that that was not serious enough. So, I mean, you really can't, 
you have to do projects that you think are important for the reasons that you do and not worry too much about whether you're going to turn off one audience member or, you know, in order to please. So basically you're, you're not, you're not, you're not, we didn't ever program for a specific audience. And I think to be totally honest, there are some composers or circles that would say we're not like a real new music group because we don't play like the really out there stuff that requires like the most extended techniques or, you know, the stuff that's that's really, really hard for some people to digest because we didn't really want to play it. Yeah. And that was the beauty of it too. Nobody was going to, nobody was forcing us to do that style of contemporary music. So we just eventually, you know, pretty much veered away from that. But it's almost like as a group, we began to find our voice. And then when we were looking for composers, those composers would want to write in that way for us to our strengths, to the way that we communicated the best. And that, that those those are the best pieces that we have written for us, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think everybody listening, there's just so much... So much awesomeness, that's a dumb word, but so much awesomeness encapsulated in what she just said. It's worth listening to a few times because when you create, if you're someone who's going to go out and do something new or you're going to write a blog or you're going to start a podcast or mm -hmm. you're going to post on social media, what she just said is kind of the key yeah. to like every okay. amount of creation possible. If you're going to create something worth being heard, worth being read, worth being seen, you can't really care. I mean, maybe you can create things for your audience at some point, but the most impactful things are rarely going to be because you're trying to think of, well, this will make this person happy or this person happy. Right. And and going back to this idea of monetizing something. And again, not everybody has the flexibility or the freedom in their schedule to do what we did. So I'm not saying everybody out there, you need to do, you need to have a project that, you know, will to suck money out of you instead of making money, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. not yeah, that yeah, yeah. Ion Sound is not that it doesn't, it doesn't cost, cost us money, but, um, and we are at the point where we can, we can pay ourselves like a modest amount. It's not, you know, I don't, I don't mean to paint a completely, um, sort of a picture that's incorrect, but I think the lack of, of monetization as being a goal or seeing money as a reason for it it does free you to to find your voice more quickly because I think money has that tendency to, you know, then, then you're driving after something that, you know, may or may not be what your authentic voice has yeah. to say. And then when you're saying what your authentic voice has to say, then people will have something to connect to. That's correct. Instead yeah. of just sort of listening to it and saying, oh, that sounds nice. So... Well, dear, I'm so happy that I finally got to interview you. Uh, yeah, so I, I want to tell, I want to talk about the CD project. I thought you already quickly, did though. do that. Oh no, you talked about the tour. Yeah, so this is this is just a quick aside, and I mean, I think just speaking about recording is is a part of this as well. We have two recordings that were um, that we are featured on. Um, those were driven by the composers of the music on those recordings, which is wonderful that we had that opportunity uh, to work with two fantastic composers. One is Jeremy Beck and the other is Phil Thompson and they're definitely worth checking out. Um, but for years, we've been wanting to do our own recording project funded by us with our own vision. So we've decided that this program is really, uh, the, the pieces are, are worth recording. It's a beautiful program in general. We would love for groups around the world to you know play these 
new pieces, these commissions with the companion Beethoven and Brahms pieces as well. So we do have a goal of recording this program and we're going to start a GoFundMe or Kickstarter or something soon as a part of that project. Um, but that is in the works. So I just wanted to yeah. have that on the podcast as well. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm good if you are. Is there anything else that you want to say? I'm sure there's more I could say. Uh, well, maybe we'll do another one someday. This is your first opportunity to do the whole spiel. This is So where can ah, people find you? Okay. So I have a website, Kathleen B. Costello, B as in boy, .com. And Ionsound has a website, ionsound.org. Uh, Facebook page. I have an artist page. Uh, Ionsound has a Facebook page. We both have Instagram accounts as well. So we're... Her easily. tags are all Kathleen B. Costello. Well, my Facebook is not. But my Instagram is Kathleen B. Costello. Ion Sound is Ion Sound. Yeah. Instagram. So go follow her. Uh, go follow all that stuff. Go check out her, her stuff and follow Ion Sound so you can stay up to date on all of that. If you need to get in touch with me for any reason, you can go to my website. That's not spit.com. You can follow me on Instagram and Facebook. Just search at that's not spit. If you enjoyed this episode and all the information in it, I would really appreciate it if you left a rating and a review on iTunes. It really helps out. Uh, also, sharing on social media is another big way that you can help out. So if you don't mind taking the five seconds to share one of the posts on Facebook or Instagram, uh, I would really appreciate that. Uh, I would also like to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. We'll see you next time.